This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. What we would do without it, I can't even imagine. Our culture is so confused. And Lord, we need clarity, not confusion. And so we just pray for your spirit to speak, to give us wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So we ended last session with the idea that male and female are, of course, equally human, but different, reflecting God in their own unique way. And one of those unique ways is this issue of headship and submission, because we saw that in the very Godhead, the Father is head and the Son is submissive to the Father. We've also seen that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God, meaning the Father. And now this, again, does not create a hierarchy of quality or importance in any fashion. In fact, I've read many statements in Spirit of Prophecy, and I share these when I do my parenting um, seminars about education and, and, and child rearing and all of that. The mother is considered to be, the, it's, it's, she's more important than king upon his throne, more important than the king upon his throne, more uh, important even than an angel in her mission. She has a higher mission that an angel could not even ask for. The mother has more influence than any power on earth other than God himself. Okay, so if we're elevating something, if we are going to say that one is more important or in whatever fashion, they are equal. But if you were to err, I think Spirit of Prophecy leans toward saying that the role of the mother is the most important on earth, higher than the angels, higher than the king upon his throne, which is really, really powerful and important for us to point out. Okay, so when we say headship, this is, again, not a matter of value in any sense of the word. Also, by the way, I find it interesting that God created the, you know, the birds and the fish, and then sort of the more intelligent mammals, and then man, Adam, and then Eve. Isn't that interesting? Now, again, this is not to say that we are not equal. We are equal. But the reason I'm saying it this way is because I know that as soon as I say headship and submission, our culture would slam this as, you're degrading women. You're a, a misogynist bigot. You're a backwards Neanderthal, masculine, domineering, whatever, you know? And it's like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying what's the Bible, what the Bible's saying. And the Bible is saying also that woman was sort of the last act of his creation. And without woman, man is not good for him to be alone. And also, spirit of prophecy, those, those things I was mentioning. So, Disclaimer stuff over on that. I think I'm being clear enough. But in the family, in the church, the sphere of men is different than that of women. The sphere of men is headship, is leadership, priests of the home, pastors, elders, etc. And there are many who take the Bible and they try to align the Bible with the ideologies of our age specifically speaking of feminism in this issue. And so they argue that the principles of headship were just a matter of the fall. Now, of course, the domineering that your husbands will rule over you is a result of the fall. See, Adam was given the responsibility to have dominion over this earth. Dominion, this, this Hebrew word means a loving, caretaking, headship, leadership over the, the world. And so as the king of this world, if you will, the son of God, as Luke calls him, Adam was the representative head of this planet, and he was supposed to rule it in a loving way, right? But 
as a result of the fall, we have all of the craziness of masculine dominance that has oppressed women legitimately in history. That's, that we're going to get into that in a moment. Man, i got to fly because we got a lot to go into here. But we know this is not a result of the fall. This is not just something the culture was putting out. This is clear in the Bible. And by the way, men also do plenty of submitting. We all submit to the laws of the land, men and women. So submitting is not something that's bad. It's not something that puts you in some sort of degraded position. Remember, Christ submits to the Father. And all the men in this room submitted to their mothers and continue to honor their mothers, right? So this is not some sort of better than type of thing again. Oh, by the way, what if we end up with a female president? Well, we submit to the laws of the land so long as they don't conflict with the Bible. Yes, we'll submit to even a female president of the United States. And so there is plenty of submitting that everybody does to mothers, to uh, Merkel in Germany, for example, a female prime minister. So this, doesn't, this teaching of headship, I want to be clear, is not saying all males are in headship over all females. That is, that is a twisting of the Bible that people have put upon the scriptures, and it's not true. It says, honor your mother, so we're all doing plenty of submitting once again. But here's Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Now, this is not subjugation. This is not oppression. In fact, husbands are asked to go even lower. If there is a low here, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So the headship in the home, the headship of maleness, does not mean that you're some sort of uh, elevated entity above. No, where Christ had equality with God, he did not consider that something to be clung on to. He made himself nothing, became the very nature of a servant, took on human form and submitted to death, even death on a cross. Is that the kind of domineering stuff we see in history that men have taken on? Not at all. Biblical headship is something completely different. The term servant leadership is an excellent one, I think. We're called to be in a much lower position, if you will, even than the, the wives and women that are in, submission, in submissive roles. We are called to be in an even lower role of dying to self completely like Christ did. To be first is to be last in Christ's kingdom, right? This is from First Testimonies. Testimonies, Volume 1. The husband is the head of the family, as Christ is the head of the church. And any course which the wife may pursue to lessen his influence and lead him to come down from that dignified, responsible position is displeasing to God. It is the duty of the wife to yield her wishes and will to her husband. Both should be yielding. Did you catch that part? Both should be yielding. But this is just how you keep peace. You just, you just yield to each other. You just, you just do nice things for each other. But the word of God gives preference to the judgment of the husband. We're going to see neurologically why this might be the case in a moment. But, and it will not detract from the dignity of the wife to yield to him whom she has chosen to be her counselor, advisor, and protector. The husband should maintain his position in his family with all meekness, yet with decision. Combining those two is something our culture doesn't get. We either become passive man with no decision, or we become dominionists who want to rule with an iron, with an iron club. Now, this is another statement that's very important. 
You could just take this one and be like, yeah, you know, I'm the head of the household. But how about this one? It is no evidence of manliness in the husband for him to dwell constantly upon his position as the head of the family. You got that, guys? It does not increase respect for him to hear him quoting scripture to sustain his claims to authority. It will not make him more manly to require his wife, the mother of his children, to act upon his plans as if they were infallible. Don't you love the balance of spirit and prophecy? Boy, what would we do without it? That's wonderful. So now, guys in the room, you may not be a, a pastor, elder, father, husband. There's more to masculinity than merely this act of leadership, headship, authority in churches and in homes. I want to now get into this, this issue. This is the official beginning of part two. So um, about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, I read a book as a, a 20-year-old man. That would be 15 years ago, exactly. As a 20-year-old man in college trying to figure out what it means to be a man as a Christian. I was an evangelical Christian. I was steeped in emerging church stuff, charismatic church, mega church, all of that back in 2000, 2001. And I read this book that just sort of got me like on fire to be male and masculine. It's one of the most widely read books in the history of Christian literature. In fact, it is number two in CBN's books you absolutely must own and read. Are you familiar with this book, Wild at Heart, by John Eldridge? I want to get into what the, I believe is a counterfeit masculinity that has been accepted largely by the evangelical world. Chuck Swindle said, this is the best, most insightful book I have read in at least the last five years. The book has sold five million copies, and it's been called a publishing phenomenon. Now, there's much good stuff to be gathered from this as well. But when we go to the wells of the evangelical world, you're going to get the, the wheat and the chaff together. And so this is why I always want to just go to the Word of God, go to Spirit of Prophecy, and ask, what has the Lord revealed to us? Because you get some stuff that's not good out of this book as well. If you go back to Greek paganism with Plato, this is one of the very early examples of, of elevating and glorifying this masculine urge, which he called thumos. It's the primal, what they believed was a virtuous, manly force. But as you can expect, in paganism, it was overdone. It was basically the belligerent, the violent, the unthinking passion and strength that was, that was glorified. That's what thumos is. It's not Christ-like masculinity, it's the counterfeit masculinity. But it didn't end in paganism. Fast forward about 2,000 years to the 19th century, and the movement of muscular Christianity was on the march. This was predominantly out of England, because England was developing the world's largest empire in history. The sun was to never set upon the British Empire, right? They wanted to conquer foreign peoples. They wanted to subdue the savages. They wanted to kill or convert at the sword, and and say, now we have Christianized this territory through brute force, kind of like Constantine, right? When he saw the sign of the cross in a supposed vision, and he heard the voice and saw the statement, in this sign you shall conquer. In other words, the cross is going from being a symbol of self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing love, to being a symbol of conquest and domination of others. That was Constantine's contribution to Christianity. Well, the British Empire picked up on that right where he left off. And so basically, conquering violently and converting and Christianizing were one and the same thing. So these guys uh, with the muscular Christianity philosophy 
would have some trouble with this, Eni, or this, um, this Jacob and Esau scenario because Jacob was a mild and meek man, right? He dwelt in the tents, but you had Esau, who was the true masculine type of guy out there, killing animals, eating lots of meat with a big appetite, right? And he was the hairy man. So if you were to go just based upon the culture's counterfeit masculinities, you'd say Esau was the true man, Jacob was, well, kind of a sissy or something, right? Well, that's not what the Bible says at all, right? Esau was driven by his appetites and was, a, was not a good person. And, and he sold his birthright for a pot of lentils. I mean, give me a break, right? So the, the, also, how about Moses? Somebody was being beaten up by an Egyptian. He comes in and intervenes, and he's the protector. He's the, the strong man here. He kills the Egyptian. Muscular Christianity would glorify that. So the Bible doesn't teach this way of thinking, but the Roman Empire sure loved it. The Roman Empire didn't call it muscular Christianity, of course, but it's the same impulse, whether it's in paganism, whether it's in imperialism, whether it's in Christian imperialism, the idea of domination, bloodshed, violence, the Roman games with the conquest of the beasts and the gladiators going at it. By the way, the gladiators, interestingly, when you read this book, Wild at Heart, there, there is scanty references to biblical support to sustain a hyper-masculine ideology, but there are many references to popular culture and movies. Quoting movies, citing the, 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 the Gladiator. There was a movie actually called The Gladiator. Another one called Braveheart. And John Eldridge really pulls from popular culture to say, well, hey, since men love these violent types of movies... Therefore, there's something within us that God has given us and that this is a good and holy impulse. Now, he doesn't call for violence. He doesn't go straight to muscular Christianity and say, we're going to conquer peoples. No, that's not what Wild at Heart is about. But it very much pulls from the same philosophical impulse of domination, violence, and these, 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 these horrifically bloody films like Braveheart and Gladiator, which he glorifies in the book. He said, this is what it means to be a man. In fact, they had these retreats in the evangelical world where you'd go and they'd show clips of these movies and they'd show, show trailers to it and just kind of get everybody stirred up and then reflect upon, you know, how does this relate to your spirituality? And I'm going, wait a minute, we're pulling from Hollywood on this. And it's not just in the evangelical world. We see plenty of Hollywood even entering into the remnant church, which is a, which is a sad thing. But in the book, um, Wild at Heart also, this, this really surprised me. And I didn't see this back then, but as I revisited this in preparation for this seminar, one of the arguments is God is wild at heart because as you look at the animal kingdom, you see violence and fierceness and wildness in the animal kingdom. What's the flaw of that argument? This is a result of the fall, right? God did not create animals to be eating each other. In fact, when you read about the new heavens and the new earth, the lion is lying down with the lamb. Is that unmanly? No, this is God's design. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. I think it's a beautiful picture of strong with the weak, isn't that? I mean, that's, there's some beautiful manliness right in that. But anyway, that's what's coming through in the book. Jesus himself was 100% submissive to his father. But he was brave. He was courageous. He was self-sacrificing. But was he wild and fierce? I'm not seeing that. He was, there was a controlled indignation, yes, when he overturned the temple uh, tables in the temple of the money changers. But there's also an obedience, a submission. I see a, a pensive, deliberate actor in Christ, an empathetic and compassionate Savior. 
Yes, I see somebody who's willing to stand up to the oppressor. When he said, you lay heavy burdens on others and you don't lift a finger? And, and, and you who have harmed these little children and led them into sin, it's better for you if you have a large millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. So he had some strong words. But when I read the Gospels, wild man is not the phrase that comes to mind when I see Christ. I see a self-controlled, wise, firm, strong, yet tender also, and meek and gentle and humble in heart Savior. If you want to know biblically correct masculinity, just study the life of Christ. You don't even need a seminar on it. Just read the Desire of Ages. Read the Gospels. But Scott, the Bible says the Lord is a man of war. We've got to talk about this issue of war and violence for a moment because I have to ask the question, in this statement in Exodus 15.3, the Lord was indeed acting as a man of war when he overthrew the wicked and oppressive nations of Canaan. And our Lord giveth and he taketh away, right? He knows when people have reached the point of their probation, when a nation has filled up the cup of his indignation, and when he says it's time to no longer allow this, this horrible child sacrifice and cult prostitution and everything to go on. He was a protector God at that point. But is he, as a central part of his character, a God who delights in violence? Listen to this statement from Isaiah. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the day in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work. So this is a work of punishment, of destruction, of annihilation of the wicked. His strange work and bring to pass his act, his strange act. So it's something temporarily necessary that he has to engage in to destroy the wicked, to put these uh, horrible oppressors in the grave to sleep, but it is his strange act. It's not central to his character. You know, when you think about Christ in heaven, what's going to be the symbol of his character for eternity is the nail prints in his hands, right? Not the blood-stained hands from having to take these temporary measures to put a check on evil. So yes, the Lord is a man of war at those times, but this is not the central impulse of his character. God is love. And in fact, this is the loving thing to do, to engage in this strange act. Sometimes we paint ourselves into a corner theologically when we say God is love, but he is also something else, as if that takes away for and competes with his love, takes away from or competes with his love. No, when he did these things, it was a loving thing to do. We could have a whole session on that issue just in itself. I think there's a session on that. I remember hearing in the, in the promos of the seminars. But um, these two books are secular books on the what was the 18, 1980s and 1990s men's movements. You got Robert Bly, you got Sam Keen, Iron John, Fire in the Belly. These books were part of this reaction, overreaction, to the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s, saying we're going to take masculinity back. Now, interestingly, these are secular books, right? Not Christian books. When you take a look into what the theologies and philosophies of these individuals are, basically, we've got here Robert Bly is a Freudian, Carl Jungian, uh, neo-pagan poet who also writes here in this issue of masculinity. Sam Keen himself is a self-confessed Carl, follower of Carl Jung, Jungian, uh, a follower of the teachings of this occultic psychologist who actually Carl Jung had said that he had a spirit guide that led him into his teachings. So this stuff, not Christian, right? This is spiritualist. But interestingly, Wild at Heart pulls from these two and quotes and cites Bly and Keene positively in, in, as, as, as something to, to contribute to the uh, Christian understanding of masculinity. Not good. Interestingly, by the way, there was a 
cult, a uh, gang, if you will, in Mexico called La Familia. And uh, they, they, they would engage in assassinations and beheadings, and they, they called it divine justice. And it was just this like hyper-masculine, crazy, violent group. The leader of this cult made wild at heart required reading for his members. If that tells you something, now, of course, John Eldridge is not responsible for that, and he has disavowed that, and he's not calling for violence or any of this. I don't mean to, you know, impugn him with that. And I think his motives are pure, and I think he does have some good things to say. I'm not trying to just smash and nail him to the wall, but I'm just saying be careful with evangelical stuff. Be careful with stuff from the wider Christian world. Ask, does it line up with the Bible? Does it line up with the spirit of prophecy? Now, this issue of violence, I want to go back and go to the Civil War. Because what I'm sharing with you about hypermasculinity and muscular Christianity runs completely contrary to the Adventist faith, the Adventist movement, the Adventist impulse of non-combatancy. This is probably considered one of the most just wars in history, right? The war on the part of the freeing of the slaves as of 1863 when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation and enlistment in the Union Army skyrocketed and the North subdued the South, and the slaves were freed, and we say, what a wonderful result. And that is a wonderful result, that the slaves were freed. Usually looked at by historians as a pretty just war. Are you aware of the fact that the Adventist pioneers during this time took a decided stand against joining in that war militarily? I want to talk about non-combatancy for a moment because it's an important part of our community of faith and our history that we have forgotten and neglected to a great degree Testimonies, Volume 1. I was shown that God's people, who are his peculiar treasure, cannot engage in this perplexing war, for it is opposed to every principle of their faith. In the army, they cannot obey the truth and at the same time obey the requirements of their officers. There would be a continual violation of conscience. Worldly men are governed by worldly principles, but God's people cannot be governed by these motives. Those who love God's commandments will conform to every good law of the land. So we're not uh, dissenters in the sense of being, you know... Um, a movement that is trying to undermine the government. We, we follow the law of the land, good, every good law of the land, but if the requirements of the rulers are such as conflict with the laws of God, the only question to be settled is, shall we obey God or man? So the official church position to this day remains, if you're going to serve in military state uh, functions and positions, that it ought to be in a non-combatant role that we are not taking bloodshed, taking violence, taking people's lives. Because when we look at back at the Bible, Jesus says that we are to love our, even our enemies, which is really a high standard for love. What does it mean to love your enemies? It means that when there is an evil person out there and you have this impulse to vanquish evil and to protect the innocent, you also have to think about the best interest of that evil person person? Are you loving that person? And that doesn't mean allow oppression and violence and the innocent to be victimized. Well, I want to unpack this a little bit more as we go forward. But basically, loving your enemy, you know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. So is that the impulse that we have to bless rather than curse? But I know that the, the immediate reaction of anybody with a conscience says, well, if nobody defends the innocent, then evil's just going to take over. So how can we as Christians just stand by and do nothing? <clears throat> well, first of all, we don't do nothing because we support with our tax dollars and with our enthusiasm 
police, military, people that have to bear arms for the protection of the innocent. And God in Romans 13 has given the sword to the magistrate, to the Caesar, to the king, to the government. And so they rightly use violence as a check on evil. But that's for the worldly men. As we just read here, worldly men are governed by worldly principles. God's people are not called to take those positions to act in a violent way. Romans 12 gives us our marching orders. That's where it says if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. Romans 13 describes the state and their role to bear the sword, to punish the wrongdoer, to bring the vengeance of God upon the wrongdoer, literally. It says he's a minister of God. So we need to support that. But then I know... This hypothetical comes up. You know, this Virginia Tech shooter, we just had the big shooting in San Bernardino. So what if there's no public authority there? What if you don't have those who are lawfully assigned with this position of using force for the protection of the innocent? I love the U.S. Constitution. I used to teach American history, just love to get into what the Bill of Rights says and how this country is uniquely designed and a way to preserve freedom and to preserve liberty and to, and to preserve security. It says in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that in order to have a free society and a secure society, it's important that you have an armed population. Now, that doesn't mean we as Christians ought to do that, to engage in that, but when you have a society that's following the Constitution and you have, say, somebody who's carrying a weapon because they want to, in a situation like that, be ready to protect the innocent. They've actually done a study where in mass shooting situations, when there's at least one law-abiding armed individual, the body count averages two in mass shootings. In situations where there is no armed individual, the body count averages 14. So seven times... So the Second Amendment thing, even though I don't personally do it and I don't think we ought to be saying I'm going to be the one that's going to take him down and we're going to kill people, the idea that you have a society that does that is part of the American structure of government and it is apparently working. So just to be aware of that. Uh, by the way, I want to also say that the, even though I wouldn't do it, the people that do that, I want to say that that person is a hero. That that is a, an act of bravery to say, I'm going to put my life on the line. Soldiers, when they engage in acts of self-sacrifice to what they believe is you know, for their country and to protect the innocent and so on. So because we take the position of non-combatancy as a church doesn't mean that we degrade what the, the other folks are doing to protect and to serve. Okay, just to be clear on that. Um, also, by the way, there is a natural human right to self-defense. So you'd never want to put that and impose this upon somebody who's not a Christian. Be like, you ought not to be doing that because the Bible says turn the other cheek. You know, th th that's just part of being human in, in our world. In fact, the Bible talked about this in Exodus 22, that if there's a thief found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. So in other words, if there was a break-in situation in Israel and it's nighttime and you protect property and life and family by using protective force, and the man dies. You are not guilty of bloodshed at that time in the development of light and truth. But if it was morning time or daytime, then you are guilty because you used excessive force. You should have done something to restrain and not kill. 
So interesting verse there in Exodus. But what does that have to do with today? In the New Testament times, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For those who draw the sword will die by the sword. And I don't see any New Testament permission that we would be engaging in violent acts of any kind. Because to me, and each individual, you know, follow as the Lord leads you in the scriptures on this. But to me, I feel uncomfortable saying, I'm going to end his probation. My objective and my calling is to witness and the Lord giveth and he taketh away. He knows when that person is past the point of no return. I have to witness and preach the gospel to the point where there is no more opportunity. The Lord knows the heart. He has the wisdom to put his children to sleep and he has not assigned me that role and that job. And maybe you as an individual have a unique calling in this, and I'm not going to stand and judge and assess every person's relationship with Christ on this. But from my point of view, people will say, well, Scott, then fine. What would you do if a robber or a rapist and a murderer and a madman was coming into your home, and you're the head of your household, and you're the father of the home, and you've been called to protect your family? You know what my flesh says? You're going down, right? I mean, I start, I start getting my hyper-masculine, um, this guy is going to die. Uh, and I, I confess that that's what the flesh would tell me to do. How dare you? You know, I had all these you know, old, old ways of thinking, like when you're a teenager, you get in fights or whatever. You know, that, that's part of my past, and many of us guys have you know, struggled to overcome that. I would not be pleased with this situation, but you know what I would do if I was operating in the flesh? I would not be thinking about his soul. I would only be thinking about my family, which is important but I would be forgetting about his soul completely because I'd say, he's going down. Um, So what would you do then, Scott? You know, I've heard wonderful, 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 many wonderful angel stories of protection, of missionaries who don't feel that they should be going in with arms into the territories where they're seeking to witness for the Lord. And the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, that love the Lord. And God is our protection. He is our shield and our very great reward. And so to just trust in the Lord, I don't think is presumption when he has said, I am your shield. And he has said, the angel of the Lord camps around you. Now, absent angelic intervention, if I'm, if I'm waiting on the Lord and there's, there, is no absent, there is no angelic intervention at that point, what would you do, Scott? And this is just, this is just my take on this. This is, you know, think through this for, for yourself. But to be consistent with Romans 12 and turn the other cheek, sword back in its place and all that. And the idea of, I don't want this person to die because I don't want to end their probation. If I'm thinking holy impulses of thinking of his soul and thinking of the lives of my children simultaneously, if I'm thinking about what's best for him, allowing him to victimize others is not good for his soul, is it? So to use a measure of force to protect, not to harm, not to kill, not to end probation, but to protect not only the innocent, but to protect his soul from engaging in an act that he's going to regret later. To use some sort of force to restrain, I think would be appropriate. I don't know. You tell me. We'll ask it during Q&A. I know I've opened a giant can of worms here, but we're talking about hyper-masculinity here. We've got to deal with this issue of violence because we've got Braveheart and we've got Gladiator being glorified by the evangelical world. We've got to speak into this and we've got to resurrect this idea of non-combatancy because it's a part of who we are as a people and it's been forgotten by and large. So anyway, here's a, uh, here's a true... Christian martyr, right? What I just described of an assailant coming in, you know, this isn't like, you know, the martyr moment. If you are persecuted for your faith, 
That's a totally different thing. We've got to be able to be willing to, to die. And, and if me and my family, families, were, women were buried underground, right, as you heard last night in the plenary session. Um, that's really, really hard for, as a man to say, we are going to be martyred if necessary. We have to be willing to go there for religious persecution issues. Oh, I don't have time to tell you the story. There's a wonderful story in Miss Brenda that we read to our children. Um, it's about to, I'll just paraphrase it real quick, okay? I just love this story. It's about angelic protection. This family goes on a camping trip, okay? They enter into a campground that's totally deserted, and somebody tells them, hey, you know, there's been some biker gangs around here, and they're kind of dangerous people. So a lot of people, they've been threatening and harassing people, and so a lot, a lot of the folks have left. And the family's like, well, it's late. You know, we, 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 can't, we don't have time to go on to another campground, so they pitched camp there. Mom and Dad took a walk. The kids are in the camper reading, you know, getting ready for bed, whatever. And the, they hear the bikes, and the biker gang is driving up. And they literally walk up to this tent with the two little girls, the daughters of the family, and they're, they're shaking the, 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 camper, the camper, not the tent, the camper, and, and, and getting ready to flip the thing and harass this family and do who knows what. Well, the father sees what's going on up there. He hustles back from his walk, and he walks up. And you got a, you got a, like a gang of strong men here, and this only, only a father would do something like this, right? I mean, what would you do? He walks up and he says, can I help you, gentlemen? <laughs> he didn't have a gun. He didn't, you know, I'm not going to start a fight with these guys. He just said, can I help you, gentlemen? Strong, confident, walks up. <laughs> the bikers look at him. This is a true story. Miss Brenda, the Uncle Arthur, these are all true stories, right? The bedtime stories for kids. The bikers' eyes bulge out of their heads. They go, <gasps> they, have the, they look white as a ghost and they get on their bikes and they get out of there. And that's like, yeah, you know. <laughs> what happened? Well, the, the police came uh, and, and they said, you guys are here, what are you doing? You know the biker gang's around? The dad's like, yeah, they came by. And the police are like, what are you talking about? He's like, they came by and I walked up and I said, can I help you gentlemen? And they ran away. The police didn't believe it. They're like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, right. This is a hardened criminal gang. These are not just like bikers who are having a good time, you know, dressing in their leather and, you know, going in their clubs and so on, like, like a lot of bikers do. These are, this is a criminal biker gang. And the police would not believe it. Well, you know what was there? Just like it, when the mountain was filled with the angels, right? Open his eyes that he may see it, right? And these bikers saw the angel of the Lord camping around about those that fear him, literally camping in this situation. I just found that to be an awesome story that reminds us of the reality of this. Now we've got to really fly through the brain science of male-female. What you have on the screen right now is uh, the, how, the, how the science is showing the differences. Here you have um, Stephen B. Johnson quoted in The Brain and Love by Daniel Amen. The genetic differences between the sexes are hundreds of times more significant than the differences between the races. You can't look at an fMRI of someone and say that's an African-American brain or that's a Caucasian brain, but you can differentiate between a male and female brain. Feminist movement of the 60s and 70s is totally debunked at this point of modern science. There is a difference other than genital differences. But new scientists just put out an article just last month with shocking headlines like this. Scans prove there's no such thing as a male or female brain. I read that, I'm like, wait a minute, they're overturning all this science in one article? What have they found? This, is, this can't be possible. Well, you read on in the article, and they're dreaming of a genderless future. 
It's, oh, you know, one day, it's kind of like, uh, you know, having, being colorblind, like Martin Luther King dreamed of, you know, we can all stand together as people. And that was a good dream, but now they're dreaming of genderless future. Hmm. You know, interestingly, in the article, it says, if a neuroscientist was given someone's brain without their body or any additional information, they would still, probably still be able to guess if it had belonged to a man or a woman. Doesn't that kind of contradict that? You've got to be careful when you're looking at what the world's putting out there, even in the science. So they're saying, yeah, you can tell the difference between a male and female brain. It's hundreds of times more significant than the difference between the races genetically. You can see the difference in the brain. In fact, you can see it from the very, very earliest days in the womb. At 26 weeks of pregnancy, the presence of a Y chromosome triggers a boost of testosterone that differentiates a boy's brain from a girl's brain. So already... Even maybe parents like, you know, we don't want to know what it is till it's born, right? Is it a boy or a girl? Well, I'll tell you what, God knows, and that is a boy or a girl in a very real neurological sense from the very, very earliest ages. I'll tell you about some of those differences with the corpus callosum and the right and left brain in a moment, but basically, you know, now it's a propaganda lie saying there's no difference between the two. Baby girls have been observed in studies to be more interested in smiling, communicating, people, and security, and baby boys more interested in objects actions, and accomplishments. Now, that's not something that these babies were taught, conditioned to believe. This is not culturally, socially imposed upon them in some sort of gender oppressive structure. No, this is just who they are as babies. And this is why baby girls more interested in dolls, baby boys more interested in trucks. It's just kind of the way they are. And, you know, I didn't know if that was the case until I had my own kids. Because I was brainwashed with all this stuff in college. With all this stuff about, you know, well, we, the girls like the dolls because we give them a doll and we encourage it. And I thought, well, what about when they're really, really, really young? You know, what do they, what do they lean toward? Well, the studies show it. Studies also show that the boy's brain has a more developed parietal lobe. This is where you engage in three-dimensional thinking and acting. So throwing and catching balls, trucks, building, fixing things, all of this. So here's your first lesson, guys, for what it means to be a male neurologically, part of it. This is a small lesson, but it's true nonetheless. What did Jesus spend doing for the first 30 years of his life? He, he, he worked with his hands, right? This is a hard one for me because I'm a teacher, I'm a book nerd, I'm a guy who likes ideas and don't like fixing things and I don't know what's what in a car engine, so the Lord is working on me on this. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, work with your hands. Huh. So that's a, that's a biblical mandate. Those of sedentary and literary habits should take physical exercise even if they have no need to labor so far as means are concerned. Health should be a sufficient inducement to lead them to unite physical with mental labor. So just for your health, by the way, this is not just guys, of course. It says in the book Education that girls should use the saw and the hammer just as much as the rake and the hoe, and that boys should learn to do their domestic duties well. So this is not like a moral delineation in like strict categories here. We have a very balanced, progressive, yet biblical viewpoint on all of this from Spirit of Prophecy. But men are especially tasked with a more vigorous physical labor. And it says, by the way, that it is in, in the Spirit of Prophecy, as it says, it's indispensable for a young lady to learn to make good bread. It doesn't say a corresponding statement about a young, a young male. So there can be a division of labor to a certain extent, but also girls using the saw and the hammer and boys' domestic duties. We got that, right? Now, how about this one? Girls are more verbal. They have more language center development than boys. So baby girls tend to talk earlier, tend to talk more. Women 
as adults say, thousands of more words per day than men. By the way, this doesn't make you unmasculine if you talk a lot. My son Levi talks a lot. I don't, actually. You might say, well, yeah, yeah, you got the guy up there is talking a mile a minute for six hours. When I'm up here, I do. I actually am kind of introverted and kind of like to keep quiet a lot. But anyway, my son Levi talks a lot. But generally, as a trend, boys less than girls. Um, And so if you think about who's best suited to raise and train the children, Verbal development in small children is hugely important. Understanding language from a very early age is hugely important because it sets the stage for all future learning. Who are children going to learn language from better? From a mother than a father on average, right? So pretty interesting. Also, by the way, you need a lot of patience with children, with small children. University of Pennsylvania recently discovered that the sections of the brain used to control aggression, guess who they're stronger in, females or males? Females, they can control aggression better so they're more patient with their children. So God has assigned roles here that are appropriate neurologically. Here you have Dr. Amen himself. He's done tens of thousands of brain scans, knows more about the brain than just about anybody. He says, there is not one human society where men are primary caretakers for kids. Men and women are wired differently. Women have a larger emotional brain. It doesn't mean that men are not essential in child rearing. Of course, that's important. Whew, man, that's important. Listen to Raising the Remnant. Do the whole parenting seminar so you get the clear balance on this. It doesn't mean that, it just means that they have different roles. The emotional brain, who's best at nurturing, connecting with the kids, male or female? Of course, we have female there. So we're seeing there's a difference in the science. They're more in touch with the feelings of their children, the feelings of others, and emotionally bonding and connecting with children, which is essential for children. This is why Adventist Home, page 84, says that the mother must stand preeminent in the training of the children. So that's, that's spirit of prophecy based. And... Um, also, peripheral vision. Women have better peri- peripheral vision. I didn't know that. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of important. Like, what's the kid doing over there? What's the kid doing over there? Stuff boiling on the stove. And women tend to be better at multitasking, right? Or, or being aware of other things. And men, more, more tunnel vision, more focus, which stresses me out when I'm just taking care of just two kids by myself. And, you know, the Lord will give us strength. We can't cop out and be like, yeah, woman's role is in the kitchen with the kids, and I'm going to go off and do my own thing. No, don't go there, guys. We need to be true leaders, servant leaders. But anyway, it's, not a, it's again, not a black and white moral issue. Guys can be great caretakers, too. I have a friend who's a stay-at-home dad. Uh, he had colon cancer. His wife is, uh, is the breadwinner of the family. That's not immoral. There's nothing evil about that. But what, are the, what the Bible and modern science are telling us is there is a difference between the two. God has pay, placed special giftedness within one gender, special giftedness within another gender, and also within individuals. You know, if you're a, a little bit different within your gender, that doesn't make you immoral or something like that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I'll get to that in a second. But you see this right here? Cor- corpus callosum. This area of the brain allows connection to take place between the two hemispheres of the brain. Women have a more developed corpus callosum. Even within the womb, that's visible in, in ultrasounds of, uh, of babies. You can see little baby girls have more of this, which means women will do more whole brain thinking and men will focus more on one side of the brain. And so in studies, when they, when they, when they read to males and females and then they look at what's going on in the brain, they'll just read a book and they'll see women have more whole brain reaction just listening to the the words of it. Pretty interesting. Men more just on one side. Martha Bridge Denkless uh, says uh, the females seem to have language functioning on both sides of the brain, basically what I just said. And interesting, this is that New Scientist article that I was talking about earlier. They also say sex differences in brain structure do exist. 
So they have to admit the truth even when they put the headline out there. There's no such thing as a male or female brain. Amazing. According to Robert Gurr, Ruben Gurr, PhD neurologist, University of Pennsylvania, most of these differences between male and female brains are complementary. They increase the chances of male and females joining together. This is evolutionary nonsense of the whole species, but you get the point. Complementary differences. He can see that, you know, biblically, we are intended to be complementary because we both reflect the image of God together. I want to talk left brain and right brain for a minute, okay? Most men are left brain focused. We do less connection between the two. We do less whole brain thinking and more left brain activity. So, Interestingly, women use both hemispheres better than men, and the, in the right brain, the neurons aren't as densely packed together, so you can draw upon multiple areas of the brain simultaneously better if you're female or if you're using the right brain. So naturally, women actually have more neuronal connections in the brain than men. Women have 9.5% more connections than men. But since men, most of us use the left brain so intensively, and the neurons are more densely packed, Men have more neurons. So women have more connections. Men have more neurons. Go figure. Isn't that interesting? So that allows the female brain to come up with bigger picture concepts sometimes, which may seem vague to a male, but sometimes it's forest and trees, right? We're down looking at the trees, focused intensity, and the female brain is more able to intuit things and, and see the bigger picture. Interesting connection on left and brain there. Men have more neurons. Women have more connections. So, by the way, there's a lesson there. If you don't have females in your life giving you perspective on things, giving you insights on things, your mother, your, 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 your sister, your wife, whatever, you're not thinking with your whole brain. It is not good for a man to be alone. We need the, and don't be like demeaning it, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, I'm a better problem solver, you know, whatever. That's nonsense. God has given us both the unique abilities. Now, interestingly, here's just an interesting factoid. When a man's brain is resting, 70% of his brain is totally inactive. I'm not talking about sleeping. When you're just kind of sitting there, and that's why the ladies will say, what are you thinking about? Nothing. <laughs> Literally. And that's okay. That's how we are. When a woman is resting, but I didn't mean to pick a picture that, where she looked like upset. I, I'm looking at that a second time like, she looked like she's stewing about something. I didn't mean that. I just meant to, I, I, I googled like woman thinking. Okay, so when a woman's brain is resting, it is 70% active. No, 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 90% active, sorry. So 10% inactive. Wow, so we're 70% inactive when we're resting. Females, 10% inactive when they're resting. And God made us so wonderfully. Our creator is so, so he, he's all-knowing. He knows what he's doing. When we exercise, the male brain wakes up. So if you're ever feeling sluggish, when I wake up in the morning, I... I'm, I'm not ready to like jump into the day with all you know my enthusiasm. Exercise. If you're feeling tired, bored, whatever, just exercise. It wakes up your brain. And females, when they are feeling you know anxious and overactive with their brain, if they exercise, it calms the brain. Isn't that amazing? So exercise wakes up the male brain and calms the female brain. I love it. I love that. Now left brain, right brain. This is important. The left brain is doing logic, where the right brain is doing creativity. The left brain is doing analysis, where the right brain is doing imagination. Left, sequencing. Right, holistic thinking. Left, linear. Right, intuition. Left, mathematics. Right, arts. Left, language. And right, also for women. Right, rhythm. Left, facts. Right, nonverbal. Feelings. 
thinking in words on the left, visualization on the right, the words of songs on the left and the tune of songs on the right, computation on the left, and daydreaming on the right. Now, I said before that most men are left brain thinkers. So I'm going to speak to most men right now. So we have the ability as men, since we're mostly hanging out there in the left hemisphere, to be more analytical, more logical, more precise, more capable of conceiving and executing plans, breaking down complicated patterns into component parts. Also, interestingly, the left brain is more optimistic. And so when we say like men like to solve problems, you know, that's kind of a reality of neurology, modern, modern science has discovered. And, and there's also a lesson here. When we say that God has assigned man, men the position of leadership, headship, this is the, the take action side of the brain, the solve problems, the do something, the, 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 the more action-oriented part of the brain, spiritual leadership, if you will. I found this study to be fascinating. As important as the mother is in the formation of the character of children, as I mentioned, higher than the king on the throne, etc. If a child, God forbid, has one parent that's an unbeliever, the children whose mother is the unbeliever are more likely to be a Christian than the children whose father is the unbeliever. So even though the mother has much more effect on the formation of character and the day-to-day development of that child, the ultimate final convictions and spiritual leadership, they're taking their cue, according to the research, slightly more from dad's approach and theology and, and, and beliefs than mom's. So I found that to be helpful to understand this left brain person a little bit better. Also, George Barna has found that churches where there's more male leadership are more successful in churches where there is less male leadership. So what God said in the Bible about men being in the headship positions is absolutely true. And it's working in the, in the actual practical day-to-day living in families and in churches. Now, by the way, I don't want to leave out the... There are men who are more right-brain oriented. And that's not sinful, okay? Uh, how about this guy? Who built those? Do you remember? Bezalel, the artist of the Old Testament. And so there are, there are a lot of guys who are, you know, still, still a weaker corpus callosum, but they hang out more in the right brain, uh, very musically oriented, artistically oriented, etc. And sometimes, actually, they've found that gay men's brains look more and operate sometimes more like female brains. So each individual has a unique brain. We don't want to paint with such a wide brush and make this like clear delineation of moral issues. And if you're not this way, you're not a true man. No, not, not true. You can be your individual self in God's kingdom, however he made your unique brain. But again, I'm speaking mostly to, to the gender differences of predominantly most men, to, to, to debunk our culture's nonsense that there's no difference, to uphold the biblical notion of male leadership and headship, and also to, to, to help you understand yourself generally as men for the most part. But for the females that have more ability in the right brain here, as well as the whole brain connection between the, between the, the two hemispheres, I, I, I want to mention that the right brain is a little bit more pessimistic, is more prone to identifying problems, and the right brain is more prone to having a sense of fear and insecurity. Now, I'm not trying to demean all women as not strong and confident and they're all fearful and insecure and they need the strong man to make them feel better. No, that would be going way too far and in, in playing into cultural hypermasculine notions. But there is something true about this. Listen to this statement. The Lord has constituted the husband, the head of the wife, to be her what? Protector. Protector. So there's something there, spiritually. 
that we've been given the kind of brain that can identify the problem, bring the solution, bring comfort, bring confidence, bring strength to our, the women in our lives. He is the house band of the family, binding the member, members of the, together, even as Christ is the head of the church. Let every husband who claims to love God carefully study the requirements of God in his position. Is that what we're doing today? We're carefully studying the requirements of God in your position as men. Christ's authority is exercised in wisdom, in all kindness and gentleness. So let the husband exercise his power and imitate the great head of the church. So there you have that. Now, this was, uh, I know a lot of guys aren't in a situation where you're a husband, so you're not a house band, you're not comforting and uplifting and, you know, empowering your wife, you're not, you know, in this position of headship and leadership, and so you're like, well, how does this apply? I love this story from Christian News, uh, a news article about a little boy in California who recently stood up to a man after witnessing the stranger catcalling and cursing out a woman who was out for a run. The woman happened to be secular singer-songwriter Julia Price who shared her story on Facebook last week in explaining how much the child had made an impression on her. She explained that as she was out on a run on November 18, a man loudly began catcalling at her, sexy lady, hey, 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 sexy lady. Price ignored the man and kept on running, which in turn made the the catcaller angry. He began to curse her out, spewing profanities. I ripped my headphones off, prepared to stand up for myself, Price outlined, but a little boy nearby... A little boy nearby, only identified as James, was watching the incident as he walked with his mother and younger sister. James spoke up to defend Price, who was just a stranger to him, thinking that a man should always protect a woman. Hey, that's not nice of you to say to her, and she didn't like you yelling at her. You shouldn't do that because she's a nice girl, and I don't let anyone say mean things to people, James declared to the man. She's a girl, like my sister, and I will protect her. The man who had been eating lunch outside then became embarrassed and gathered his items to leave. Price asked the mother if she could bring, hug the child and tell him thank you. I told him how grateful I was for him, she recalled. He just shrugged and said, well, I just wanted to make sure your heart was okay. That's beautiful, isn't it? That boy knows what it means to be a man. And that can bring tears to your eyes. That's okay, guys, because that touches my heart. I mean, I'll tell you, what, what a beautiful story. You know, David wrote, said to Solomon when he was soon to die, he said, be strong. Be strong. Now, this is not physical strength. Was David known as being like a big, strong, giant man when he fought Goliath? No, not at all. He was, it's resoluteness, firmness, unbendingness. By the way, have you ever read in Revelation 21, verse 8, that the fearful are listed among idolaters and sexually immoral people and the liars and those who practice witchcraft. The fearful are mentioned as among the wicked in Revelation 21, verse 8. Isn't that interesting? So David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. What a wonderful charge he gave to his son to be strong. By the way, David himself, he was the youngest, right? And when Samuel came to array his children, or when, when, when David's father came, Jesse came to array his children before Samuel. Was David welcome in that lineup? No. So David had a position in the family that was demeaned. Maybe you had a childhood where you were not affirmed and uplifted and strengthened and given courage, encouraged by the father figure in your life, by your father. David certainly wasn't. 
But you know what? We have a perfect father to fill the gap for where all of our imperfect fathers did not do their job fully. Because they, we've all got that experience in our lives where we have insecurities, we have fears. We don't have this in its perfection yet. But when you go to your father in heaven every morning and every day you get on your knees and you recognize that he is calling you to be strong, to show yourself a man. And he says to you as an individual man, he says to you, you are my beloved son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. He said that to Christ. Desire of Ages says he says that to each one of us too. I need to hear that sometimes. I think we all need to hear that sometimes. You can do it. You are strong. You are courageous. Have confidence. Be strong and do the Lord's will, though the heavens may fall. You've got uh, the demise of guys with Philip Zimbardo. You remember the number one reason why men are failing today was conflicting messages in the culture, right? You want to know what the number two and number three reasons are? Oh, for, I'm going to skip through that. I cover that in Media on the Brain. Watch Media on the Brain, Disc 5. Um, so we're going to run out of time. No clear delineation, lack of goal setting is the second reason. So we don't set goals. We don't have a purpose and an aim and a, and a, and a, and a, uh, a mission in life. And the third reason why men are failing in our culture is digital entertainment. According to the research here with this survey, video games and pornography. And Zimbardo dwells to a great extent on that. Again, disc five of Media on the Brain gets deeply into the video games issue pornography issue we're going to talk about in the next three sessions. But I'm going to add a third that, they didn't, that he doesn't mention. Because this, these three things have something in common. These three things, video games, pornography, and spectator sports, all become the obsession of men who have no purpose in actual life. Because we've got these masculine energies to lead, to solve problems, to be strong, to be courageous. God's given us this male brain. And since the culture has said, don't do anything with it because you can't be a leader. You're not supposed to be a male. We go, well, what do we do then? We turn into passive man. We become conquerors and achievers in the video game world. We experience all of the sexual pleasures of the pornographic world. And we siphon off all of our male strength and energies into rooting for a basketball team or a football team that is doing nothing. It's all fiction. It's all a game, right? But we become so obsessed with it and we pour ourselves into it and all of our enthusiasm goes into that. And we're living in all three of these in a counterfeit reality. We're not living out God's purpose for us as individuals when we become addicted and obsessed in these three areas. All three of these suck away our strength, our masculinity, and it's siphoned and wasted into three things that mean nothing in the kingdom of God. Now, I wish I had time right now, but after lunch, I'm going to share with you more about the sports world, how it relates to muscular Christianity, and what Spirit of Prophecy has to say about this. You're going to hear a phrase called real manliness in Spirit of Prophecy, and you're going to see some incredible quotes. If you've never seen the, all of these quotes, I collected basically all the quotes on sports and how we should understand this. And I'm going to insert that at the beginning of the next session before we get into the issue of lust and pornography because I cannot leave this aside because I know that this is a big, big hang-up for us. <laughs> it's my personal story. If you've ever watched Media on the Brain, I talk about my obsession with college basketball and all of this. I grew up loving sports, playing video games. I'm one of you. I've walked the same walk. I'm not on a pedestal in any way. In fact, when I hear about what's going on in the sports world, it still speaks to those old neurological pathways, and I'm like, I want to watch it. No, that's not I. 
That's the old nature. Let's put that to death, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do we as men want to have the mind of Christ? Do we want to have true strength, courage, leadership, self-sacrificing love in our lives where we say, my main purpose and my main agenda in life is to bless and uplift others, men and women, to seek for the lost, to win souls, because Christ is coming soon. We see it in the world events. We see it in the news headlines. We know that the time is near. And urgently we must ask, Lord, redefine me, please, as a human and as a male. What does it mean to live in these last days as you, as an individual? Because, folks, when we have an army of youth, male and female, we're going to end up with the most incredible power ever seen. With the two working in concert with their complementary aspects, Oh, somebody needs to do a seminar. Are they doing a seminar on biblical femininity? I think they are, aren't they? These, oh, they aren't. I thought I saw one, but... Oh, it's oh, bummer. It's canceled. But anyway, these two, equally important. Equally important. And God has a plan for us to not buy into this cultural nonsense and madness. To go to the Bible. To go to the spirit of prophecy. To go to the science. We've seen some pretty awesome stuff. There's more coming. But guys, I know that the number one thing is not the cultural propaganda. The number one thing that is our hang-up spiritually, our unique temptation is the lust issue. So have the courage to come in and let's face this and deal with this and look at the science on lust, look at the science on pornography addiction. We're going to talk about masturbation, all of it. We're going to take a look at what the Lord has to say and how to break free, like practical, real, actual methods and steps to take to walk with purity and be addicted to purity in a pornographic world. That'll be the next session. We'll talk a bit about sports as well. Let's close, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace that it is sufficient for us. We thank you for calling us your chosen, calling us to a mission. I pray that you'd help us to recapture what that means, how to be the protectors, how to be uplifting others, how to comfort, how to be like Jesus. Help us to be true men. We know that that is the greatest lack in this world, is the want, the lack, the need of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who will stand for the right though the heavens may fall. May we be those men. We can't do that in our own strength, O oh Lord. We ask for the mind of Christ. We ask for a new nature, a new heart. Forgive us for buying into the culture's propaganda or buckling under the pressure of political correctness or infusing our passion into worthless things like we mentioned a moment ago. Lord, just give us a passion for the true, for the beautiful, for the good. Give us a love for souls most of all, a love for Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.